we are no longer broadcasting. We have to take into consideration our audience. The people who are listening to our story are a part of the story. And if we ignore that fact, first of all, they're going to go away. And second of all, we're not going to be as effective as we could be. Story is everything. Welcome to the Grounded Content Podcast. I'm your host, Marian Abrams. I am really excited about this episode. Jeff Gomez has worked on projects for Avatar, Hot Wheels, and Pirates of the Caribbean. And I invited him on to talk about something really important. You know I like to talk about the lines between persuasion and manipulation. Jeff talks about the difference between culture hacking and culture jamming. This interview will help you think about how you develop story for your brand or for yourself, but also the role that story plays in our culture and society. I first met Jeff Gomez in his office in New York City. I walked in with Joe DeSena and Jesse Itzler. And what impressed me first about Jeff was that even though I was standing next to those two, he made time and attention for me. Now with these interviews, I normally skip straight to the tactics, strategy, and ideas. But Jeff's origin story is an important part of this. Whatever you're here for, please stay till the end. Because the really important points about culture hacking, about culture jamming, and about how you can use these ideas for your own brand to speak to your own audience come at the end. Okay, here we go. Welcome, Jeff Gomez. I'm so excited to have you on Grounded Content. And the reason I invited you here is that story is such a sort of a hot topic right now. And you have a really deep background in story. And I've heard your story about the power it had in your youth. And I want to sort of go from there into the power that it has in terms of for brands, but also the sort of the obligation that that brings with it. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you got interested in what story is. Sure, sure. Actually, I, I think I might be telling you a couple of things that are, are new that I only recently discovered. And it's so exciting to me. It, I love when perspective shifts, when you think yeah. something and it becomes almost like a tape recording that you just spew out all your life. And then you learn something and you have a choice at that point. You could say, well, that messes with the story. Or you could say, hmm, how does this work? What does this change about the narrative? So a lot of people know that I was born in a lot of chaos. My mom was effectively homeless, was born and my first few days were in a women's shelter on Staten Island. And she was persuaded to give me up to foster care. And she did. I've told that story so many times. It was even in a TED Talk. And you know what? The foster family stumbled on that TED Talk. I had not seen or heard from them in decades. And this is the family, if I remember this TED Talk, because I think I watched it in preparation for this, that you really credit with sort of showing you how good life could be. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. So they reached out to me. And I met my foster sisters for the first time since I was very, very young. So I saw pictures of myself from a period wow. of time that I had never imagined I would see. And what was so strange, Marion, was that I was holding books. And they said, yeah, you were very special, Jeff, but a little strange. <laughs> you were reading. It seemed to us that you understood what you were looking at and that you were watching TV and could somehow follow. This is between the ages of zero and three. 
So my big explanation for my story thing had always been, well, I left the bliss of babyhood with this family upstate and encountered chaos and a world that was violent and dark. Uh, the Lower East Side of Manhattan's, the barrio, the rough-and-tumble world of New York City, and sought escape, sought fairy tales and mythology and monster movies and writing and storytelling. But it seems it was in my bones. <laughs> it seems that that wasn't necessarily a route that I took as an escape. It was falling back on something that was already familiar to me and innate, and that's really interesting. How do you adapt now as a storyteller? Because you had this great origin story that had this sort of beginning and you had this sort of this like traumatic experience and you've had the finding this sort of recovery through story. How do you rewrite that story now? Well, in a way, it becomes less about being kind of a mutant superhero and more about how for some people who are born a little bit more sensitive, a little bit more of like an orchid instead of a dandelion that will respond to things like story, hardwired into our minds. You've worked on some very high power projects, you know, things that people have heard of like Pirates of the Caribbean and Avatar. I'd love for you to just share, because it's something you and I have never talked about, your professional work, how you view story at that level the kind of work that you've done? Well, I think we're hitting on the theme of today, which is that from when I was a kid, story was precious to me because I was able to infer things from it. You know, if this character could figure their way out of this situation, what are the analogies in my life that I can use from what the character did? And unfortunately, that happens often because my circumstances were rather serious. You know, there was danger in my life. There were a lot of crises. And so my life was a little bit like, you know, those books, those movies. So adapting, taking what I learned and applying it was helpful. And so as I grew older, I came to realize that not everybody took that from story. Not everybody was able to make the leap from taking the lessons that narrative imparts and applying it to their lives. So I began to think about how I could make sure that happens in a more purposeful way. So the big secret to moving into pop culture, video games and comic books, and then these big blockbuster movies, that turning point happened for me when I was working with Mattel on Hot Wheels. So they said, oh, can you tell a story with these 35 cars, because it's the 35th anniversary of the toy, and maybe we can do like some kind of little animated special, you know, to do with that story. And this was an awesome opportunity for me. I was going to write a cartoon. I was going to help them extend this property across multiple platforms, this transmedia storytelling that I'm so known for. Well, that's great. What do I have to say? I don't know much about race cars. And I asked some questions of Mattel, and they said, oh, you know, we're going to make 11 million copies of whatever it is you're doing, whether that's little comic books or animated videos or each episode of the video, 11 million copies, and it's going to go all around the world. 
And I said, and how old is the audience? And they said, oh, they're like four, five, six years old. So I thought to myself, if I had had a story that spoke directly to me at that age, not by accident, but a little bit on purpose, what would I say? You know, what would I want told to me? This was just after 9-11. And so I realized that I could send messages, carefully researched and carefully considered messages through this narrative. I could speak to these children, millions and millions around the world, as if they were sitting in a circle around me. What would I say? And it was successful, super successful with Mattel. Everyone was happy. Disney came calling. They said, oh, can you do that for Pirates of the Caribbean? Can you do that for, you know, Tron? <laughs> so it really, uh, between you and me, is culture hacking. I get to infuse meaning and facts and aspirational notions into gigantic intellectual properties that are seen and enjoyed around the world. What I love about this is that, first of all, I think a lot of people started with, the, you know, what is it that I can infuse in this message that will sell more toy cars? And what you said, what is it I would have wanted to hear? And so you're still serving a commercial purpose. You're still helping the client. But what I really want to know is what was that message? What was it that you wanted to tell those kids? Wow. Oh, thank you, Mary. I appreciate it. Nobody asks me that. <laughs> uh, there was war and that war was impacting people everywhere. Children's parents were going to war. Children in the Middle East, whether they were Israeli or Saudi Arabian, you know, were feeling the tension. I pay a lot of attention to how people feel around the world with regard to geopolitical and sociopolitical trends and events. And I knew this to be true. What could I tell them? I could tell them that this race that they're watching is not about one person, a white blonde kid winning the race. This was a race where if the racers who were members of nations from all over the world, including an Arab boy, Kadim, if they didn't cooperate, with each other, if they didn't figure out along the way that they needed each other and needed to help each other, everyone was going to lose because there's a big nasty menace that threatens, you know, kind of like, you know, winter is coming in Game of Thrones. Everybody was going to lose if they didn't figure out how to settle things up with each other. But that was the story I told. You know, you can have speed, power, performance, attitude. That was the brand ethos of Mattel's Hot Wheels. But then I just added teamwork. That was the one that wasn't in the brand ethos, but then became a part of the brand ethos with this super narrative, which lasted for years and years. That's so powerful. This idea of culture hacking, which you talked about, which when you think about it in your context is really exciting. But as more and more people sort of caught on to these ideas. Do you see this as what people like Putin are doing? Do you consider that culture hacking? Fantastic point. So one of my big influences growing up was Norman Lear, of all people. He was the showrunner of sitcoms like All in the Family and Good Times and Maud and things like that. These were sitcoms that had a social conscience. So for the first time, Americans were sitting down 
and listening to funny but relevant arguments about the Vietnam War, about women's liberation, about poverty and the situation for people of color. You know, no one had talked about that on TV before. And what that did was that it enabled the entire country to start talking about it. When you use humor, it becomes so much easier to talk about. Norman Lear was influenced by a Latino, a Mexican named Sabido. Sabido created soap operas, telenovelas. And in his telenovelas, he would infuse information that was actually quite relevant to the women who were watching it. So in his soap opera, Simplemente Maria, Maria was a maid, worked for a family and was terribly abused by this family, as were lots of houseworkers in Central and South America. She would sneak off at night and go to night school. And she educated herself and by the end of the series was able to get a great job and take her children away and liberate herself. You know, so that created this gigantic wave of night school attendees who were women in the 60s and 70s, which precipitated the women's liberation movement outside of the United States. Fantastic. Lear understood this and put that into All in the Family. And I understood this and started to infuse it into Hot Wheels and Pirates of the Caribbean and Avatar. So in a way, it's kind of a cool way to say, well, I'm culture hacking. But what I'm really doing is what any great storyteller would aspire to do, infuse what is story, but it's instruction. It helps us improve our lives or warns us about things. So there is a progressive and aspirational quality to that. What Vladimir Putin did and what some politicians in North America have done since and what a lot of autocrats are doing around the world is what I call culture jamming. Culture jamming is different. Culture jamming is the release of misinformation, disinformation, or information that is going to be contradicted by the same source only a few minutes, a few hours, a few days later. So jamming is like, rather than creating a narrative, it's just destroying trust in any narrative? That's correct. It is corrosive to our understanding of the narrative. It unmoors us from a sense of common reality. It is the most dangerous thing that is happening on earth right now. It's yeah. the most immediately perilous. When you look back at the fall of nations, the fall of empires, one of the last things to go is a common sense of perceived reality. When we stop seeing the same thing, when we're looking at the same thing, we turn against each other. And when we turn right. against each other, we become conquerable. We can lose what it is that we have. So this sort of turning against each other brings me back to my moorings a little bit as an interviewer, because I can think about one of the things that I first understood about your content was this idea of that the structure itself of the story has a powerful influence on us. And you were explaining that, you know, the hero's journey is the traditional narrative, but you've sort of pushed it beyond that to a different format. I don't want to take too much credit. I'm observing. Uh, yeah, you've observed and introduced me to the idea. 
So a lot of my listeners are also thinking about, I have a service or a product or an idea or a nonprofit, and I want to use story to help people understand it better. So kind of much smaller scale than the troubles of the world that we're talking about. But for those people, even at that scale, I would think this idea of the collective journey versus the hero's journey could be a great hybrid because it could be a way that they can achieve their kind of business and practical goals, but also having a really positive influence on community. Okay, I'll I'll try and zoom through it. People can read (laughs) it in detail online, but essentially it's this, you know, from the dawn of humanity, we were storytellers. That's how we make sense of the world. So if we are passing on information to our fellows and we're in a cave, we're going to tell you, here's how to leave the cave and get the food and get the fire and maybe get some other humans so we can propagate. You have to be right in order to get that done. If you're wrong, the world will kill you. It was a very, very dangerous world back then. Anything could eat you, right? So that is hardwired into the human mind. We haven't been around that long. So our brains don't evolve instantly. We're still set on leaving our home, earning our pay, you know, conquering whatever needs to be conquered, getting the lucre, and coming home and providing for our families, our communities, our cities, our countries. So that is a circular movement, which is the hero's journey, simplified. And I'm not taking anything away from Joseph Campbell. There's deep, rich wealth of these kinds of narratives from all over the world and throughout history. But a lot of them, when you boil it all down, is about the assertion of rightness on what's not so right, on your opponent, on wrongness. When we started to fight for resources, we had to be right. You know, it wasn't like we were wrong and those other people who were trying to get the water or the food were right. So we had to assert our rightness on their wrongness and make up stories about them so that we could maybe dehumanize them or say how different they are from us so that we could get the food and the water. So that's fine. It served us, I suppose. But right now, almost everyone in the world has become a storyteller. Almost everyone in the world is capable of expressing themselves through some kind of social media platform. And what happens is we're not used to that. We have a circle of friends, you know, maybe 50, 100 people all together that we see at any given time on any given day. Now we're being exposed to thousands of people, sometimes tens or hundreds of thousands of people, individuals like us, not world leaders. So that is creating what my friend Alan Berkson calls pervasive communications. We are all asserting our rightness on everybody else's wrongness. (laughs) All at the same time. All at the same time, right? Right. So the problem with that is that it's happening with increased frequency and the algorithms and things that are in social media are causing us to butt heads more. So the hero's journey circle is not serving us anymore, not at that fundamental level. So what is it? What can we do? What is the narrative modality that allows us to be effective with each other, allows us to tell our stories, sell our products, and be successful without trying to murder each other 
or tell each other that it threaten each other through Twitter. <laughs> so what is that? What collective journey is, is that it is systemic storytelling. Instead of an individual hero, an individual protagonist that is moving in this circle, it is a story world, a system. And all the characters, you, the person you're selling to, the person who doesn't care about your product, <laughs> the greater world that can run into your product and maybe talk about it, and in the even greater world that has no clue about your product, all of that is a part of the system. And so what we need to do is understand what the flaw in that system is. That flaw is not necessarily within one human being, but is within the way that we are dealing with each other and in the way that the environment functions and in the way that communications function. What is that flaw and what does this product, what does the message that we have to convey, what's that going to do to repair that flaw? What's that going to do to reconcile the people at odds with each other? Everyone asserting their rightness on everyone else's wrongness. What's that message going to do to chill that out and sell that product? Because it's needed. It's necessary, right? It's going to help fix the system, even in some small way. Same with our entertainment stories and so forth. That's why you see the rise of story worlds, these big entertainment franchises, Harry Potter, Star Wars, you know, Game of Thrones, Orange is the New Black. These are universes filled with characters that are grappling with each other in systems and need to reconcile if they are ever going to stop horrible things from happening. So I think about American culture and our traditional heroes and stories, you know, we have the sort of the the cowboy, the strong, independent, you know, needs no one hero. Is this idea of a collective story new or is it just new to us? Here's how it's new. And this is really special because it is indicative of where we are going in terms of the future, in terms of technology, and in terms of how we're going to get out of this mess. And that is that a narrative is no longer didactic and it's no longer one way. We are no longer broadcasting. We have to take into consideration our audience. The people who are listening to our story are a part of the story. And if we ignore that fact, first of all, they're going to go away. And second of all, we're not going to be as effective as we could be. So philosophically, that makes sense. But can you help me grasp what that really means in practice? Well, an example of something like what we're talking about, and actually a flashpoint that really hammered home how powerful a collective journey can be, is that Pepsi did a commercial with Kendall Jenner. And in that commercial, there was a protest going on. And it was getting a little tense. And suddenly... In a beautiful dress, Kendall Jenner rises and steps forward to hand the police officer a Pepsi. And the police officer stops being stern and drinks that Pepsi and is all happy, implying that everything was going to just calm down. This was during Black Lives Matter. This was during Me Too. It was pretty intense out there in society. And that was a mistake. It was a mistake because... 
Pepsi attributed to Kendall the role of hero. In the hero's journey, the hero will rise and make peace between the warring factions. And the world looked at that and said, oh, no, (laughs) that's just not going to do. That is a hypersimplification, to say the least, not to mention bad taste, but a hypersimplification of how these factions can reconcile. And so the world began to complain about this. And you know what? Pepsi was like, "Uh uh-oh, we hope this goes away. And 24 hours later, it was just getting worse and worse without the ability of the corporation to respond, to engage in dialogue as opposed to the very expensive one-way communication that they provided with this commercial, it was getting worse and worse for them. So ultimately, they had to pull the commercial and apologize to all of these people. And also, on the PR front, they had to defend and protect Kendall because, of course, she was very upset. She had trusted Pepsi to tell this story, and they didn't do it well, which damaged her brand. So... There was a lot of interaction that had less to do with the story of the commercial and more to do with the meta story of the communication of many people with many people, Kendall's fans, drinkers of Pepsi, the people in Black Lives Matter. All these factions came and demanded a reconciliation, which Pepsi had to do at great expense to themselves as quickly as possible. That is a collective journey narrative in action, and that's a simple one compared to how things have evolved since. Now, if you had been working with Pepsi, and maybe you joined them after this first ad went out, could you imagine creating a new ad based on the feedback from the public and what that would look like that kind of helped to resolve the problem it created? The process would have went something like this. We would have instructed Pepsi to embrace the narrative reversal. That's a term that we use here at Starlight Runner, to embrace the narrative reversal. That means to quickly study what's being communicated to you by these many people and very quickly become transparent about the mistake made oh, wow, we did not even consider this. That was dumb. Here are the points that we are taking from you, X, Y, and Z. And here is the corrective that we're going to do immediately to delineate what it is that they're going to do about it. Get that out there. Make sure that there is some initial feedback to inform the next message because the next message has to come after the apology. And that next message could be incarnated in a new commercial. I couldn't tell you exactly what that commercial would be like, but damned if I wouldn't study the data. I would glean the language of these people. I'd ask them, you know, what would have been a better story? And look at all of that data. That can be done pretty quickly these days. And then put together a commercial response if it was so deemed that that would be helpful. It's so interesting because at first I was going to ask you when we started to go down this avenue, do you think people have an obligation to tell stories that have a positive impact that are supporting community and, you know, all these things that we've talked about? But then when I realized from that story is that 
it doesn't even matter if they have an obligation because this is the thesis of my show is that it's actually more effective. Pepsi would have done better if they were doing good. Well, they thought they were, <laughs> yeah. but that's hubris. You know, Kendall will solve it all because everybody loves Kendall. That's hubristic. The true answer is in listening. What's this really about? Let's look a little deeper and examine this. All it would have taken is a few strokes of the Google to realize that Kendall should not <laughs> impose herself into the midst of this. So when you talk about collective journey, I think maybe I had an overly simplistic understanding in, in that it was sort of like the band of misfits was a collective journey. But really what you're saying is collective journey isn't about a bunch of heroes versus one hero. It's really about the story includes the audience and the participants and the non-participants and the heroes and the villains are all sort of a part of it. Am I getting that right? If you don't do that, you are narrowing your audience significantly right off the bat, because in this day and age, you want your product to be able to reach an array of different potential customers. And all of us identify so intensely with our identity. We communicate our identities all the time now. So if you don't take all of that into consideration, you're going to limit your audience or you're going to piss someone off. And now that's not hard to do these days, but there are ways to speak above it to what we call aspiration. And there are certain aspirational drivers that we use at Starlight Runner that sit above all human nature. You know, everyone, everyone wants to be charming and funny Everyone wants to be, you know, in control of their life. Everyone wants to belong. Definitely. Especially now. I think now this sense of isolation is very strong. So do you think a story has the power and obligation to counteract that sense of isolation? It truly does. We have now these planetary channels, like planetary TV channels, right? Netflix, Disney Plus, <laughs> you know, everyone in the world is looking at these things now. And if I had the chance to talk to them at the highest levels, I would say we must heal our damaged psyches because what happened to us over the past couple of years, the sense of isolation is the simplest description for what's gone on with us. The, the stress, the anxiety, particularly for our young people, you know, who had not encountered this kind of mythic-sized problem. I try to think back. There was 9-11, the generation before experienced AIDS, polio, the Second World War. You have to go back to the Second World War for something that cosmically impacted every single person on the planet. And so we don't have the tools to cope with the aftermath of that. And our stories need to help us cope. They need to give us tools for coming to terms with ourselves and one another so that we can reintegrate our society and self-soothe. Look at Pixar's and Disney's. They're wonderful with Turning Red, this new Pixar movie, Encanto. Those movies, it's interesting, there's no big bad in those movies, no horrible monster villain that has to be defeated in a spectacular battle at the end. It's trauma that they're up against those families and those whole systems were racked by trauma. And so they have to reconcile. Yeah, and that's such interesting storytelling. It's the storytelling of the future. We're not going to be fighting Darth Vader for much longer. 
we need to repair the system that perpetuates Darth Vader's over and over and over again. It sounds like you are hopeful about the power of story for the future. Do we have a choice? Do we give up? That would suck. Of course I'm hopeful. I've looked into the eyes of chaos. You know, I've seen terrible, terrible things in my life, not just when I was a child, but I've traveled the world. I know how bad it can be. We have to persist. We have to persevere. And we have to offer one another, not just hope, but instruction books to global reconciliation, to our ability to get out of these situations and help one another. We're smart enough to do it. We are. We are. Things have improved, you know, incrementally over the centuries. We live better lives now than we did, you know, a couple hundred years ago in many, many ways. So that gives me some indication that at least we're going to go out with a bang. We're going to do our best to make it better before it ends. Is there anything that you're excited about that you see potential for either in your own work? And I don't know if you can talk about that or in work you're seeing. Sure. And actually, I think this is relevant to your audience, Marion. There is a technology that some people kind of dismiss. Oh, NFTs and blockchain. I don't know what cryptocurrencies, things like that. Those things belong to a family of technology called Web3. And I believe that Web3, you know, if you think carefully, we haven't had a big technological leap insofar as the internet and things are concerned in a number of years. We're headed there. And what Web3 is going to do is it's going to raise the stakes for individual people around the world. In other words, they're going to become stakeholders. They're going to become contributors. It's going to give muscle behind their voice. Here's an example. I believe that we'll be able to tell stories in the form of communal narratives. We'll create story worlds. There'll be established visionaries and creative people building those story worlds. And this can be not just a fantasy world like Elden Ring, which I'm playing right now and is so awesome. So not just like that, but brands, you know, and communities built around brands and products. And we'll be able to say something to the brand holder, contribute a thought, contribute an idea, even contribute product of sorts or sub-product. And through blockchain, we can be credited for it. We can be acknowledged, validated for our contribution to the conversation and if it's used, if it becomes a part of the product line or a part of the canonical story world, and that starts making money, we can start making money through the fact that these technologies imply smart contracts and can move money around in secured ways and make it profitable for us to become a part of a greater and more fascinating creative or business narrative. That has never happened before in history, and it's about to start. I think everyone listening should give a little thought to what that can be like, because it's next. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Grounded Content Podcast. Spread the word, tell your friends about it, send them our way. And if you'd like to get on my email list where I send out a monthly roundup 
of the ideas I've been working on, the strategies, the tactics, the things we've been talking about, go to groundedcontent.show and you'll see a button there. And a special thanks this episode to my editor, Chris Zarnock. Without you, the show would not be what it is. And finally, if you need help figuring out how your brand should be thinking about content and podcasting, you know where to find me. All right, I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.